The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I am so honored to get to ask to come and just share a little bit of my life with you this morning. Uh, Our teaching pastor, Sean Palmer, let us know that we have started a new series that we're going to be going through, and we're going to be taking the next few weeks to look at the Gospel of John, and specifically, we're going to be looking at some things that are called signs in the Gospel of John. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with that, there's seven. Some scholars say there's eight. Either way, that's a really significant number in the ancient Near East in this time. There's a whole lot to unpack there. But it's similar to the way that we have signs all around us, right? It could be on the freeway that says, hey, this is the sign. This is the exit to Katy. This is the lane you need to be in. Or it could be as simple as a stop sign that you pass on your way on Piney Point Road here, that the sign points to something else. The, point, the sign points to an authority or someone that's doing something. This is where we need to go. In the same way that John has these signs that are miraculous, But it's not just about the miracles, it's actually pointing us the way to something deeper, more profound that's going on. So we're going to be spending the next few weeks looking at these signs and, hey, what's going on behind the scenes that maybe we would miss? So we're going to be doing that. Uh, You would think it makes sense to start with sign number one, um, but we're not going to do that. We're going to start with sign number three, uh, because that's kind of how the rotation works, and that's the the passage I get. So we're going to start in John chapter five. Just think of it, it's going to be kind of like a good Quentin Tarantino movie, where you start with the end of the movie instead of the beginning, and then you have no idea what the timeline's like. I'm telling myself this to think like, hey, the guy won Oscars. Maybe this is going to be better, right? So uh, that's how we're going to roll with this. Uh, But There's something that happened uh, recently that I think helped set the stage for what's going on in this particular passage. Uh, If I haven't seen you since New Year's, Happy New Year, Happy 2020. Hope it's off to a great start for you. Uh, My family and I had a great holiday up until New Year's Eve. So uh, it was kind of interesting. We had a great visit. My uh, in-laws, my wife's parents came to visit us and we had such a blast. It was so peaceful. We stayed in town. We didn't have to travel. We didn't have to do much. We didn't have to go anywhere. It was really restful, and we were planning to go to a party uh, on New Year's Eve with some friends, and unfortunately, my my mother-in-law actually fell, and she broke her elbow. Um, She's okay now. She ended up having to have surgery, but she's on the mend. She's recovering, Uh, but as you can imagine, that was a little bit of a scary New Year's Eve, and so instead of going to the party, my wife spent New Year's Eve in the emergency room with her dad and her mom and just making sure that they were uh, taken care of. And I got to have a popcorn picnic on the floor, you know, and watch movies with my kids. So uh, it was funny, though, because that's how 2019 ended. And so 2020 started and nobody broke any bones. And I thought, well, we're already better than we ended, right? Uh, the bar was really low. And uh, it's funny, though, it's kind of how that creates a sense of hope. Like, man, I hope this year is better than how it ended. Um, And then it's an election year, and I remember what the election was like last time and how polarizing and divisive uh, that was for our country and our world. Uh, There's so much violence and tension in the world. And you may be like me and wondering, is 2020 going to be better than 2019? And then some of you are really dealing with some things in your life. Some of you are dealing with loss. You're grieving the loss of a loved one, maybe a a child or a parent. Uh, Some of you are caring for people whose health is ailing. 
and it's brutal and it's hard. And you may be wondering, where's the hope in all of this? And that's the exact context that we find Jesus performing a sign is in one of the darkest, most hopeless places. So we're going to turn to John chapter 5 today, and we're going to pick up there. But before we do that, I want to show you a picture from where this story takes place, because we actually know where this is. So this is a picture in Jerusalem of the pools of Bethesda. We found this place, and you can see just how deep some of those pools would have been, how much water is there. Uh, But it was so remarkable to be in that space and then to go back and read this passage and feel like this is real people. This is a real place, real time. This is not made up. This is something that really happened. And it just makes it more like 3D to me, if that makes sense. Um, And so what I want to do is just kind of share a little bit more about what's happening in this place thousands of years ago and how it translates and has an impact on us today in 2020. Cool? So let's take a look at John chapter 5. And it says, Jesus led his followers to Jerusalem where they would celebrate a Jewish feast together. In Jerusalem, they came upon a pool by the sheep gate surrounded by five covered porches. In Hebrew, this place is called Bethesda. Crowds of people lined the area, lying around the porches. All of these people were disabled in some way. Some were blind, lame, paralyzed, or plagued by diseases. And they were waiting for the waters to move. From time to time, a heavenly messenger would come to stir stir the water in the pool. Whoever reached the water first and got in after it was agitated would be healed of his or her disease. In the crowd... Jesus noticed one particular man who had been living with his disability for 38 years. He knew this man had been waiting here a long time. So interesting. And it's easy to skip right past that and just know, okay, that was a really long time. But what you may not know is that in the ancient Near East in this time, the average life expectancy for people was about 40 years. Essentially, this man spent his entire lifetime waiting to be healed. So when it says Jesus knew he had been waiting a long time, it's he knew he was waiting his entire life. And some of us may be in that place where it feels like we're waiting our whole life for something to happen. And Jesus said to the disabled man, are you here in this place hoping to be healed? Now, I gotta be honest. There are times when I read that question and I say to myself, is Jesus being kind of a smart aleck here, right? I mean, why else would the guy be there, right? Um, But when I step back and think about it, there's actually something that's very gentlemanly-like about this. There's something in this that actually allows Jesus to elevate this man's humanity, where he's seeing him and he's engaging and he's asking him a question and he's saying, I'm not going to do anything for you that you don't want to happen, right? He gives this man the chance to name and voice, this is what I'm hoping for. This is what I need. And I love that because there's something powerful when we're honest enough with ourselves and we're honest enough with God to say, God, this is what I need. This is what I'm hoping for. And look at his response. 
the disabled man says, kind sir, I wait like all of these people for the waters to stir, but I cannot walk. If I am to be healed in the waters, someone must carry me into the pool. Without a helping hand, someone else beats me to the water's edge each time it is stirred. Now, there's something really interesting about his response. You notice he doesn't say, I'm hoping to be healed. And he also doesn't say, Jesus, would you be the one to sit with me? Would you be willing to carry me into the water? Because he knows that what he would be asking in that situation is, will you put your entire life on hold? Will you forget everything else? And will you sit with me and stay with me and carry me into the water? He believes his situation is completely hopeless. There's no one who's willing to meet him in that space, and there's no one who's going to do that. And he's so hopeless, he's not even going to ask for it. But look at what Jesus does. Jesus says, stand up, carry your mat, and walk. At the moment Jesus uttered these words, a healing energy coursed through the man and returned life to his limbs. He stood and walked for the first time in 38 years. Unbelievable. But this was the Sabbath day, and any work, including carrying a mat, was prohibited on this day. So the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, must you be reminded that it is the Sabbath? You are not allowed to carry your mat today. And that's interesting, right? It's easy for us to take these folks and completely villainize them, right? I mean, come on, you're missing the point. This guy hasn't walked his entire life and now we're onto him because he's carrying his mat, right? But there's something about the way that this group of people celebrated the Sabbath that's actually really powerful and actually elevates our humanity. I'll never forget when we got to go to the Holy Land and we got to spend a Shabbat uh, dinner, a Shabbat meal with a family and they invited us into their home and they let us do that and we got to watch how they celebrated this meal, what they do every seven days and it was nothing short of inspiring. Now, one of the things that I thought was most intriguing is they gave us all kinds of instructions, right? Because there's so much in the culture that if you're not aware of it, you may miss and you may do something that is offensive or all that kind of stuff. So they gave us lots of instructions before we went into these people's house. The one that was most intriguing to me was they said, if you go, need to go to the restroom, absolutely go. But whatever you do, don't turn off the light on your way outside of the room. And I thought, that's really good, because that's, like, that's what my mom always trained me. When you're the last one to leave a room, you turn the light off. This is what you do. It's, you, know, you save energy. You do all that, right? They said, whatever you do, don't do that. And I thought, well, that's curious. Can you tell me why? What's, what's the thinking behind that? So there's some passages in the law that say we, you shouldn't kindle fire on the Sabbath because it's, uh, it's work. So if you can think about it, if you've ever been in a dark room and you turn on the light switch, you can see a spark. Uh, that could be considered kindling a fire. So that's why they just, on the Shabbat, they leave the lights on the entire time. And it's different than every other day of the week. It's one of those markers that reminds them, oh yeah, this is the Sabbath. We're not working today. We're not doing anything. We're resting. We're not a human doing today. We're a human being. We're just being with God. And when I left that meal and I watched the father take his kids in and say a prayer of blessing over each one of those kids, 
I remembered leaving and thinking, I need a little bit more of that kind of Sabbath practice in my life. I need a little bit clearer distinction of this day is not like every other day. And it was something that made me inspired and wanted to raise up what it means to be human. So let's not jump too quickly to the gun and say, hey, like, we need to get rid of the rule. Sometimes the rule actually offers an elevated humanity. But at the same time, sometimes if we focus too much on the rules, we can miss the spirit of what's happening. And unfortunately, that's what happened for these folks. So the formerly disabled man said, the man who healed me gave me specific instructions to carry my mat and go. So the Jewish leader said, who is the man who gave you these instructions? How can we identify him? So they kind of relent a little bit, and now they're upset with, well, who told you to do this work, right? Who, who told you that? So the man genuinely did not know who it was that healed him. In the midst of the crowd, in the excitement of his renewed health, Jesus had slipped away. Sometime later, Jesus found him in the temple and spoke to him. And Jesus said, take a look at your body. It has been made whole and strong. So avoid a life of sin or else a calamity greater than any disability may befall you. Again, Jesus is taking what is the rule, what is the law, and he's elevating it. He's saying what sin does to us is more debilitating than even being paralyzed. What sin does is it makes us less humane. Either we treat ourselves or others or God's creation without the respect it deserves, and it fractures and it breaks and it disables, it paralyzes us to our very core. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, you need to live differently, and I'm inviting you into that space. So then the man went immediately to tell the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the mysterious healer. So they began pursuing and attacking Jesus because he performed these miracles on the Sabbath. But Jesus' response to his attackers, my father is at work, so I too am working. Essentially what he's saying is, the Sabbath was made for us, for human beings, so that we would rest from our work. But God is always about redeeming and restoring and healing and making things new and I'm just doing what I see God doing. There's so much in this story that sometimes I think we can miss, and I wanna walk through a couple things that I think are really important. And one of them I'm actually reminded of from a story whenever I was te uh, teaching high school math for a year. I didn't last very long because it wasn't the right fit for me, <laughs> right? One and done, that's all I had in me. Um, <laughs> But while I was there, I was also got the chance to coach uh, junior high uh, football, junior high basketball, and help out as an assistant on the varsity team. Uh, that felt like a good fit. I really enjoyed that. But I will never forget this one game where one of our players went in to make a tackle, and he didn't get up, and he was laying there. And so I had a connection with this student, so I went out with the physical um, trainer, the person who was going to check on him, and I remember being out there, and we're starting to ask him questions, how you doing? And he says, I can't feel my legs. And I was shocked. I was devastated. Immediately, I was wondering, oh, man, his parents are up in the stands. What are they feeling? Is he going to be paralyzed the rest of his life? So we call for an ambulance. We start working with him immediately, and it feels urgent. We were probably there three minutes with him, but it felt like an eternity. 
And I will never forget the moment he said, oh, I can start to, I can feel my toes and I can feel my legs. And when he described it, it sounded like when your leg falls asleep or your arm falls asleep and it starts to wake up and you get the pins and needles and that pain, that sensation. And none of us were ever so grateful for that pain that he started to feel because what it meant was that he's gonna be able to walk, he's gonna be okay. And he was, so grateful for it. But it's interesting that in this story, if you look at it, in healing this man, what Jesus essentially gave him was the ability to feel pain that he had never known for his entire lifetime. Never knew what a stub toe was or a sprained ankle, skin knee, right? Jesus gave him that. You're welcome, <laughs> right? And I think sometimes if I'm honest, I look at the presence of pain in my life as the absence of God, right? But in this case, the presence of God is actually awakening this man to some things that he would never know. And our ability to feel pain is actually what gives us the capacity to walk. And it's interesting, too, that our willingness to share our pain is what gives us the capacity and the ability to walk with others. It's the thing that connects us. And it's our fear that I'm the only one who knows this, I'm the only one who's experiencing us, this, that actually paralyzes us the most, that keeps us from reaching out, that keeps us from sharing, and keeps us stuck in a hopeless state. You know, I remember when I graduated high school, I got the chance to go play football in college at a small school in Jackson, Mississippi called Millsaps College. And so I went out there where I knew nobody and uh, spent four years going to school and playing football. And at the end of it, I was really grateful for it. The first two years, I was not grateful for any of it. It was hard. Um, it was a completely different culture. Um, Mississippi felt like a different part of the world, you know, um, that was part of it. Uh, but also the, the school that I went to was a completely different culture than what I had grown up in. Uh, it caused me to ask all kinds of questions about my faith, about God, about everything. And I felt like an outsider. I felt alone. I felt like nobody knew what I was going through. And then on top of that, um, when I would go out for the team and I would be in practice, I just, I had like a slump. Um, I played wide receiver and you could have dropped me off in the Arctic buck naked and I wouldn't have caught a cold, right? Like I went through a spell where like if it was anywhere near to me, it would bounce off me. I couldn't catch anything. And up until that point, I had always defined and found so much identity and worth and value in the fact that I was the best player on the team. So this was a season where I felt the most isolated, the most alone, and I felt like the biggest failure I'd ever experienced in my life. But looking back on it now, I'm actually so grateful for it. It taught me so much about who I am. And just Thursday, I got a text message from one of my uh, teammates. He and his wife live in the Woodlands. They're actually part of our Ecclesia campus. They go to the downtown campus. And he texts me and he says, hey, I've got a coworker who has a son. He plays football at Millsaps. He's a freshman. He's a wide receiver. 
He's in a really dark, hard place, and he's asking questions about whether or not he should be there. (laughs) Would you be willing to talk with him, right? Essentially, would you be willing to talk about one of the darkest, most painful times where you felt like a failure, right? And I was like, yeah, totally, let's do this. So we met for coffee on Friday, and he's still making his decision. He's got a little time to decide. But there was a connection that formed with this young man, this 19-year-old kid. He's a good kid. And I can't wait to see what he does with his life. I can't wait to see what he decides. But I hope that we stay friends, and I feel like we will because of the connection we made. And it's interesting that this thing that happened to me 20 years ago that sometimes I'd like to forget (laughs) was actually the thing that brought us together. And in talking to him about it, I find a sense of healing and restoration. Like there's still something going on. And is it possible that it's our willingness to share our pain and walk with others that gives the capacity for God to come in and heal us, heal those around us, and redeem and restore a lifetime of pain and hurt? And I know if I'm, if I'm in the middle of the darkest season and somebody says that, I might be like, you know what, take your cliche and get out of my face, right? So I get it. Some of you are in dark places. And what's great about that is the way that Jesus practiced on the Sabbath. In the ancient Near East, on the Sabbath day, you wouldn't walk very far. And if you're like me on the Sabbath when you get a day off, I've got a routine There's certain things that I do on the regular because I find peace and I find rest in that. It's not a stretch to think that Jesus intentionally chose to stay close to this place because he frequented it often on the Sabbath day and he would often show up and just be there with people. And if you look at what happens in that place, Jesus is there because he chooses to be there. And if you're in the place where it feels the most hopeless right now and it feels dark and it feels like God is not there, can I say to you, that's actually where God chooses to go. And even if it feels like he's not saying something, it may be because he's a really good friend and he's not the one who shows up and says a cliche at the wrong time. Does that make sense? God is with you. He is for you. And so Ecclesia, the invitation for us this year in 2020 is to look at things differently. And if we're in that place where we've lost hope, that God might give us the courage to be willing to share our pain, to walk with others, and to have the faith to know that he's with us. It reminds me of a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, where it says, why then do you, Jacob, inheritors of God's promise, you, Israel, chosen of God, Why do you say my troubled path is hidden from the eternal? God has lost all interest in my cause. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? The eternal, the everlasting God, the creator of the whole world, never gets tired or weary. This is a tying back to where Jesus said, my father is always at work. His wisdom is beyond understanding. God strengthens the weary and gives vitality to those worn down by age and care. Young people will get tired. Strapping young men will stumble and fall. Right? He's saying there's going to be times where it's painful. There's going to be times where it's hopeless. It's inevitable. It's coming. 
but those who trust in the eternal one will regain their strength. They will soar on wings as eagles. They will run, never winded, never weary. They will walk, never tired, never faint. Ecclesia, may we be the people in 2020 who see in the most hopeless places and hopeless times the opportunity to share our pain and to walk with those around us and in some way find a sense of healing and hope and renewal because of God's presence in our life. Would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful that you are Emmanuel, that you draw near to us, that even in our darkest, most hard, hopeless places, that's the place you like to go. That's the place you find us. May you give us faith to know you're there to trust you. May you give us courage to share our pain, our struggles with those around us. And then somehow would you bring life back to us? Would you give us the ability, the capacity to walk with those around us? And we ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.